Hello and welcome to the Stack Magazine's podcast. My name is Stephen Watson, I'm the founder of Stack, and this week I'm speaking with Connor Purcell, the author of the magazine Blueprints, a new book full of information and advice for anyone who wants to publish their own magazine. Connor is a serial magazine maker and we speak about some of his own publishing projects and the stuff he learned from making mistakes with those and how this book gradually took shape over the course of several years. He's produced a handy list of five things he learned while publishing a book about independent magazines. So we chat through those to hopefully give you a decent idea of what's actually in the book and whether it's the sort of thing you need in your life. He mentions the print exhibition that's going to be happening here at Somerset House throughout the summer. There's loads of interesting stuff taking place around that, including a series of stack things that we're going to be running at the end of July. So I'll talk more about that at the end of the episode. But for now, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Connor Purcell, author of The Magazine Blueprint. Hey, Connor, welcome to Somerset House. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, so you're normally based in Dublin, right? That's right, yes. And, and so what brings you to London? Um, well, I'm in London, first of all, to buy lots of lovely magazines because there's some great <laughs> magazine shops in London and um, also to promote my book, The Magazine Blueprint, which was published last month as well. So and it, you never really need an excuse to come to London, do you? So. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the book because that's what we want to talk about today. So uh, so you, you, you've made a, a, a book um, advising people on how to make a magazine. And I think it's important to state at the beginning, you have some credentials here. So, so you are a serial magazine maker. Maybe like just to, to talk us through like sort of the stuff you've done over the last 10 years or so. Yeah, I guess I've worked on both sides of sort of mainstream and indie publishing. My first uh, editing job when I was the sole editor of a magazine was one called Print Week Middle East in Dubai about uh, 13, 14 years ago. And from then, I've worked for a variety of in-flight magazines, including three magazines in Hong Kong, Chinese Airlines, um, also Emirates Airlines in-flight magazine. Um, I've made magazines for bookshops, for newspapers, for shopping malls. Um, And when I was in Dubai, I set up an independent travel magazine called We Are Here. Um, And then when I moved to Dublin, that sort of transformed into uh, We Are Dublin. Um, And so, yeah, there's been a lot of different types of experiences um, in newsrooms, um, on on my own in an office as well. so I, I guess we are here is the first time that you and I came into contact with each other. So the, like, it was a, a, a brilliant magazine idea. Tell us a little bit about what that thing was. Um, well, thank you. Uh, it was um, the idea was sort of the anti-travel magazine because I was sort of, I I'd seen I was very interested in travel and the travel magazines, the mainstream travel magazines, tended to be very commercial, very focused on who was advertising, um, a lot of calls to action. Um, quite cheesy in terms of the design, quite old-fashioned, so I wanted to do something very different, which was a bit lo-fi, and the idea was to focus on a different city each issue. Um, That proved a bit more difficult because a lot of magazine making is selling the magazine, and when you're starting from scratch in a new geographic location, you have to build up contacts, distribution, marketing, It's so for a one-man job it was was a bit too much, so I did um, two issues in Dubai and one issue in uh, Kathmandu in Nepal, which is great, but if I'd done the third issue was was going to be, um, the fourth issue, sorry, was going to be uh, Bangkok, but I think that might have killed me. So um, <laughs> then I moved back to Dublin anyway, so uh, that then kind of transformed into We Are Dublin. So it was very similar um, 
sort of design and, and look and feel it was just it was if if you were doing a travel magazine about dublin um what would it look like and that's what weird dublin was and so you, and you were also able to make life a little bit easier for yourself with that because presumably once you found the shops in dublin where you sell your first one you can sell the next one there as well yeah and you can kind of gauge how many you're going to sell and also because i was distributing myself to these shops i was taking uh, you know 60 percent of the cut rather than 50 or 40 percent so um when you're doing it in one location, you are constrained a bit in terms of who's going to buy it. People, although people did buy it outside, it did sell in the UK, but realistically, most people that bought it were in Dublin and in, were interested in Dublin. But that's also good, so you know exactly who your audience is. Yeah, sure. But so uh, it, this is all past tense now, right? Yes, that is uh, that is gone, and um, I think it's. I think some magazine makers, indie magazine makers, maybe you can you can sometimes flog a dead horse, and I think it was. T- Taking along, I was making very small amount of money, but I felt you have to make a decision, and I felt though I was more exciting to do different, new and different types of creative projects, including the book. So you can't really do everything at the same time. So right, exactly. You need to pick and choose, yeah. and 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 presumably drawing upon all of these experiences, these various like problems that you'd hit along the way, is one of the things that then makes you think I should write a book about all of this. Right. Yeah, and I've tried to be honest in terms of the mistakes I've made. It's not. You know, I think sometimes it's a glorify, glorification of making indie magazine. I mean, it is a lot of hard work and the chances are you're not going to make any money from it. So I uh, try to look at different ways of um, what you can get from it apart from the monetary side. The money can come, but it is difficult and you need to be, I think, pretty realistic going in that you're not going to end up with a huge media empire. You're not going to be the gentlewoman, um, probably not anyway. So, yeah, but you need to be doing it for the right reasons. Um, and then I think it can be very rewarding, definitely. And so the way you've gone about this is obviously you're drawing on your own experiences, but you've also spoken to, I mean, I don't know how many people are in that book. You've spoken to editors, art directors, shop owners. How, how do you go about like choosing that selection of people to start with? Um, it was just people who I respected and admired and the, their books and magazines or shops, um, the people I'd come in contact with. I mean, I've been to... Um, and I think I'm in Amsterdam, do you read me in Berlin? I, I knew Jeremy from, from Mag Culture, I knew yourself. Um, so people who I had contact with, and then magazines I loved. And then sort of people I didn't think would respond, like David Carson, George Lois, Stephen Heller, and they all responded and they were great. So I think it's always good to send people an email. The worst they can say is no, and then you're back to square one anyway. So a lot of people are willing to talk. Um, people like Adam Moss, who's great. I met him in New York. Um, Gail Bichler from the New York Times Magazine. I met her in New York as well. And also, I think if you're going to the city, I was going there and saying, I'm going to be in New York for a week. Can you, They're much more likely to um, meet you than if it's a speculative, can, do you want to talk to me? But if you say you're going to be in the city between these days, it's going to be half an hour. People are willing to give you the time. Oh, it's, you know. it's coffee. People have a, a cup right. of coffee. And people you. always like to be in a book. It's a bit more, um, it seems a bit more um, less ephemeral than magazines. So I think it, was, it wasn't too difficult to get the people I wanted. So I, I, was, I was looking back um, in, in preparing for this, looking at the various oh. things that like, we'd written about you on Stack. Um, and I came across Jasham Malk Waterley again. And so actually, maybe it'd be good, you could just tell us a bit about what that magazine was. Yeah, that was um, a friend of mine in Dubai called Narain Jashmal and his family run Jashmal, which is a big trading company, shopping center. They bring over the likes of Kate Spade or they bring over big Western brands and they'll run the shop for them in Dubai, in the Gulf. 
um, and he is sort of he was always into print he was into digital as well but he wanted to do something print for the bookshop they had the standalone bookshop called Jashamau Books so the first issue we did was about superheroes um, and it was an oversized sort of A3 format thick newspaper stock fifth colour on the cover it was trying to play around with the conventions of it and then the second issue was about um, printing and it, uh, one whole full circle from A to Z of, of sort of start to finish and yes that is sort of where I got the idea um, from was why hasn't anyone written a book Right. About this. Good. So, so we, we sent out that second issue right, on stack, yeah, yeah. and I, the, we're we're in the middle of some uh, some work with the the stack website at the moment. As you know, we're going to be uh, selling these magazines from years ago. So it's super exciting, like coming across all these things in the warehouse, and like you know, we'll be able to sell like some copies. And it struck me that yeah, this this thing must have been yeah. in the works for years because you began with that second issue speaking to a load of people yeah. all about yeah. their experiences and yeah, and um, that was where the initial idea. And then I sort of didn't do anything about it. And then I mean, it's taken me a long time because I remember I interviewed you it was about three or four years ago. It was a long time ago. And then the problem was I I had a publisher interested and. He wanted to go down a certain route. It was a London-based publisher. And then at the last minute, he sort of said, no, actually, we don't want to do this anymore. And then I kind of was a bit frustrated and I just left it for six months. And then I went the other extreme. I just kept interviewing more and more and more and more people. And I interviewed 50 people and I could have interviewed 100. And at a certain point, I said, right, you're going to have to stop getting more, you know, stop getting more content. And just focus on the stuff you do have and edit it and um, try and put it into some sort of coherent shape so it, it sort of was all over the place so I'm, I'm very relieved that it's actually out in the shops now and um, nobody's tried to sue me so it's, it's all fine <laughs> so far because I, mean, I guess this is one of the problems with books is that so you talk about you know the benefit of books is people want to be in there because it's not as ephemeral but by the nature of it it just takes such a bloody long time to yeah. make the thing happen yeah and also I was designing it myself I was I mean sure a lot of we can talk about it in a minute but the the, the issues that indie publishers have is building up an audience and people wait too long to build up an audience so a lot of what I was doing was setting up Instagram setting up a mailing list website social media um, constant daily trying to get followers and all these channels so I'll have an audience when I launch for people to sell to because if you don't do that you're not going to sell any copies so um, that takes up a huge amount of time so you have to be prepared to, to do at least a year if you're doing a book and at least six to eight months if you're doing a magazine otherwise you're going to get a bit of a rude awakening when you do actually go to press like this stuff isn't going to sell itself and I remember I, um, I my house was luckily slightly less boxes now but when it's filled full of boxes you think my god how am I going to sell this stuff um, and also I was trying to sell everything through my website because I don't want it's expensive to ship magazines it's even more expensive to ship box uh, boxes and I wanted to um, ensure I got 100% as much as possible so there's a whole lot of different things you have to think about aside from the creative stuff yeah so you, you've already touched on this but you you've produced your five things that you learned in making a book about how yeah. to make a magazine the first one is always be building an yeah. audience so it's that thing of don't wait don't wait until you've got your magazine printed in your hands you need to start building that audience what straight away yeah absolutely I mean I think that the first thing is to think of the title um, and your branding or have some idea of the branding um, and set up your Twitter your Facebook your Instagram populate that with some content so it's not completely empty when people visit it then start looking at other similar Instagram sites who are those followers follow them 30% of those people will follow you back so it is a slow process but I mean within six months to eight months I had about 5,000 followers on Instagram so I mean then if you're looking at a conversion rate on MailChimp or a conversion rate on Instagram of 1% 
you know, you can, that's you know, you can still make uh, you can still make some money, but that's how you do it. It's a slow, incremental process, um, and there's no sort of magic bullet. And no matter what coverage you get and what PR coverage you get, it's not going to move the needle as much as your own work and building up a mailing list and using Mailchimp. And even with that, you've got one shot, so you need to do your A/B testing and all that stuff. Um, so there's a lot to think about. But yeah, you need to be doing that. That's the first thing you need to do is build up your audience. Um, Think about where is your audience, who are they, where are they hanging out, go and find them and then make them aware of where you are and what you're doing because otherwise they're not going to know and they're not going to care. And, and, and there's also the phenomenon of if you tell enough people that you're doing this thing, you actually then have to go and do it at some point. Yeah, and I mean, as I said, I'd interviewed 50 people so I didn't want to be sent, I didn't want emails dripping in like a year later going, hey, whatever happened to that book or people just think you're going to do it, you say you're going to do it and you're not going to do it so it's good to have deadlines and... and you know, I, I was going to publish it last November, but then um, there's a creative conference in Dublin called Offset, and I contacted them to see if I could sell some at their shop um, during the conference, and I'd workshop and different things. So it was worth then waiting till March um, to do it. So, um, so yeah, but I'm just glad now it's, uh, it is out. And most, I mean, once it's out, most of the work is done. It's just a case of managing it and PR, basically. But most of your work is done once it's published. So, so you've got your, your book out in the world. Your second um, golden rule, or second thing you learned from making this thing, uh, was have a point of view, right. which I could not agree more with. Well, tell, tell us, why is that important? Um, I think it's something that you'd said when I interviewed you. And I, 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 I'm just repeating what you said. That's all I've done in this book. That's why I like it. <laughs> That's why you like it. But no, I think there's, um, it is important to f- like figure out why, what are you trying to say, you know, and... and if you don't have a point of view, then why would anyone care? And I think it's interesting if you look at indie publishing from three or four years ago when there was a lot of talk. And I remember we were, I think we were at a Stack event and um, um, we were talking about, you know, are these magazines any good? And a lot of them weren't. And a lot of the people I talked to for the book were scathing about the quality of the magazines, saying they're boring, soft focus photos, soft focus writing, minimal design. Uh, uh, nothing of interest interviews with graphic designers or, or you know hipster bike shop owners and but now it's completely different there's a lot of really interesting stuff look at accent magazine lady beard you look at magazines have a political point of view they look more at like zine culture rather than the main, main mainstream magazines they talk about queers or queer culture or, or politics or, or feminism or and you don't have to agree with them or not but the fact is they have a point of view and they're political and the design even is playful and irreverent it's not minimal it's not lots of white space so I think that's completely different that the scene has changed since when I started doing this book three four years ago definitely. yeah yeah I, I think that you know it, it's we're living in these more febrile times and you like very, very definitely seeing people trying to respond to that and say, well, I, I've got to, I've, I've got to say something about this. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you look at Twitter now and I think people are generally more political. You know, when I was in college, it was the late 90s, early 2000s and no one was political. No one cared. People maybe talked a bit about George Bush and Iraq, but that was it. There was no real sense of any upheaval. And I think young people are generally quite political, but now this generation is more political than ever, maybe since the, the 70s, um, you know, early 80s with the CND protests and stuff. There was a lot of uh, political activism and a lot of zines. And you look at magazines like Oz and stuff. There's always been a link between, I think, kind of counterculture protesters and uh, the printed page. Um, and I think it's good to see that happening now as well. But you're not being too hard ass about all this because your third thing you learned is enjoy the process. Yeah, definitely, because if you don't, you're going to stop, and then there's no point in doing it, and that's worse than not starting in the first place, because it's just about a opportunity cost. What else could you be doing with your time? You know, if 
if you want to make a magazine, that's great. But if you're going to give up, then you might as well have spent that time learning how to make videos or learning how to do a podcast or what a screenwriting, whatever it may be. Do something creative is, is brilliant, but at least do the one issue, you know. Um, ideally, do three or four issues. Ideally, turn it into a, a viable media uh, business that, and you end up selling it for 75 million uh, pounds. <laughs> but if you don't enjoy it, you, you won't do it. And I think that comes back to the original point of why are you doing it you know and if you have a burning desire to say something then you won't stop because even enjoyment might be the right wrong word but just a real passion to I need to tell these people stories or whatever it is I mean there's a magazine called Nansen that talks about immigration and I can see why she has a real sense of I think Vanessa the, the publisher has a real sense of a mission to do that whether you agree with what she's what she her opinions or not it doesn't matter the point is she really believes in it and I think that comes through in, in, in a magazine like that as opposed to you know, if you're interviewing uh, people who make coffee for a living, I mean, there's a limit to the amount of interest and the burning passion of... I'm not saying coffee isn't interesting, but it's not. So let's stop talking <laughs> about that. Okay, all right. I can think of at least two coffee magazines. So I'd, I'd argue the case for that. But anyway, let, let's, let's take that as a case in point. And the point number four is be flexible. Right. I mean, that's, and that's the beauty of being an independent magazine maker. You can dodge and weave a bit. And... You know, you might start off trying to create one magazine. You realize when you start that you're going to do something else. And one of the more interesting people I interviewed was Jack Self from Real Review, which is the architecture magazine. And he talked about not knowing what you're going to do until you start doing it. And he came from it very much, I think, from a sort of architectural practice sort of view, um, idea, whereas you have your blueprint, but you still need to start the process and that will inform the end result. So I think it's important to... Um, yeah, to, to not be too stuck in stone. and don't, Everyone has a, a finished product they have in their picture in their head of what it's going to be, but it's never going to be like that. So you've got to make sure that uh, you're flexible enough. And also if you're working with other people, designers, writers, whoever it is, they have their own vision too. So Adam Moss had said a great thing about not strangling the vision of others around you. As an editor, your job is to marshal all those talents and have a clear vision, but give them enough rope that they can bring it, bring their own skills and expertise. Otherwise, they won't be excited about it so that job as being an editor was quite um, it's not talked about as much you know the actual act of being an editor it's more about design I think and the business side but talking to someone like Adam was great because for me he's probably the best magazine editor around um, at the moment right right and and that also I mean to, to hear him say that like that's the joy of being the editor like, yeah. you know you, you you might initiate an idea but ultimately, like, you know, a, a magazine is a massive team effort. You, you, and one of the things I always say to people talk about magazines is don't try and do it all yourself. Right. Well, I mean, which is exactly what, exactly what you did. The, but, you know, the shell of a man. <laughs> begging under uh, London Bridge. <laughs> but, the, but by bringing together various people yeah. with different skills, actually, you make something that's more than the sum of its parts. Absolutely. And I mean, look at the great magazines now. Look at Colours, how many people worked in Colours, the old um, title from Benetton, or you look at Wired or a New York magazine or the New Yorker I mean there's just brilliant people doing great work and, and um, allowing each other to do it and not being too forceful and, and allowing enough room for like surprises and stuff that's part of the fun of it right you don't know and maybe you do a photo shoot and you think well we're going to do a straight portrait shot but then there's a really interesting shot of his hands with his, all the rings and, and that becomes the front and everyone talks about it so don't be too stuck in your ways because Otherwise, you might as well be a mainstream publisher with their, you know, monthly sales targets and their, we're going to do a travel issue in October and a fashion issue in September. And they know it two years in advance and there's not really much room for um, surprise or excitement. So don't try and beat the big titles of their own game. Okay, and, the, and then point number five, and again, this is one that I love. 
fundamentally, no one cares about your magazine. Yeah, I saw, um, I think I, I saw a very funny Golden Globe speech with um, Jim Carrey, who said, just remember, no one cares as much about that award as you do. Um, and I think that's can be true for all creative things. You know, you're, it's your baby. So um, don't expect people to be excited or interested. Don't expect people to buy it. Don't expect people to um, browse through and tell their friends about it. They're not going to unless you give them a very good reason, unless you get them in the right moment. And I remember I'm on Instagram, people, when I posted a picture of the book, people would say, I can't believe it. I've been waiting this for years. Yes, yes, yes. A million hearts. And like a week later, they still hadn't bought it. So <laughs> what people say online and what they do are two very different things. It's very easy to, to say anything online. Um, so you have to work hard to convert people. And, and just because someone says they're going to buy it doesn't mean they will. And you can't get annoyed at that person. You can't say, hey, you said you're going to buy it. You can't be that guy. So you have to just, it, it's a really, um, I think, a numbers game. If you make... 10,000 people aware of it who might be interested in it, then maybe a thousand people will buy it or 500 people will buy it. And that's how you, you sell all your copies. It's, it's just by keep at it day by day and, and don't assume that people are going to um, be as excited about it as you are. And so what have you found in this whole process? What's been your best thing that you've done in, in, like in, in selling the book or selling the magazine? Like the, what's been the thing that does actually like move that needle? Um, building up a mailing list, definitely. The conversion rate on that is much higher than anything else. So I would say when I first set up the website, it was the magazineblueprint.com and it was just a holding page with sign up for the mailing list. Um, and it's just a name and an email. Don't give them too much or they won't, um, they won't fill them in and they'll leave. Um, and then I had about 5,000 people um, when I on my mailing list now I, they weren't all I was signing some people up as well which I know you're not allowed to do anymore you'll <laughs> you go to prison so um, but uh, yeah I had about 5,000 people and they were all people who were interested in magazines um, and I sold about 200 to 300 250 to 300 copies from that mailing list so that was a big chunk of the books and that was in about two week period so it, but I, I, that took six months, a year of, of you know, 20 minutes a day, 30 minutes a day, five days a week. And if you're not doing that, if you're not building up your audience, suddenly you, you've no one to sell to. So that was the most important thing about book sales. Um, and now with GDPR, we have to find a different way of doing that. Yeah, or just uh, don't leave a forwarding address. Do so, I don't know what, it, what, what, what you do. Um, but, and it's funny, um, I've done a few talks and workshops about the book and I've learned so much more things doing that after the book is out that I wish I could have put in the book talking to different people um, so yeah it was an interesting process um, the, the, the selling and the, the marketing side of the book that I didn't really um, know a lot of, I mean I did to, ex to an extent but it sort of made it more concrete once I started trying to sell this book because um, as I said I was trying to get everyone to buy it through the website which is difficult to ask because a lot of people want to pick it up and flick through it obviously so it's um, yeah, that was a very eye-opening sort of experience to do that. Uh, and so you've now got the book out. As you say, that's the bulk of the work done on that. So what's next for you? What's, what projects have you got coming up? Um, well, at the moment, I am um, just finished my fourth film as a screenwriter. So I'm um, working on and I'm working on a play as well. So a lot of it is um, uh, sort of screenwriting, playwriting. Uh, uh, moved into that field a bit. Um, and I do have another idea for a book for... Um, about indie magazines I'm talking to a publisher at the moment about so that something might happen there and another book about story and how the, the, the narrative of cinema um, plays into how people create stories like agencies uh, everybody from designers to writers so I'm trying to do something as well so a few different projects um, 
Um, but uh, more, um, I think, in the next few hours, we'll just be drinking beer. I think that would be the <laughs> that would be the, the future that I see for myself. All right. And assuming we, we've got anyone who's heard this and they want to actually see this book for themselves, where, where, where do they go to buy it? Um, in London, it is on sale in Mag Culture, um, and it will soon be on sale in Magma as well. Um, and it will also be on sale in at Summer Has Set House at the print exhibition, um, which will be out. Uh, which will be on um, fairly shortly in June, um, and then in Dublin it's in about five or ten bookshops in Dublin. But it's all if you go if people want to go to um, magazine the magazine blueprint dot com they can see a list of stockists there or they can um, buy it online and get next day shipping. So uh, and you would prefer that because then you get all of that money. Uh, my children will have something to eat. Um, so <laughs> without if you don't if you buy through a shop they're going to have sixty uh, percent less food on the table. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Simple as that. All right, Connor, thank you very much for coming over. Great. Thank you very much, Steve. Cheers. Okay, that's all for this week. There's tons of sensible advice there for independent magazine makers, and of course, an awful lot more of it in the book. So if all this sounds like something you want to know more about, head over to themagazineblueprint.com and buy your copy. Let's give Connor a nice little bump in sales. As I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, we're all getting very excited here for the launch of the print exhibition at Somerset House. It opens on the 8th of June, which is today, so the day that this episode goes out, and it's going to run all the way through to the 2nd of August 2018. I obviously haven't seen it yet, but we've helped out with some of the organising and it's looking like an amazing selection of British independent publishing from the last hundred years. As I mentioned earlier, we're going to be hosting our own stack pop-up from the 27th of July to the 2nd of August. So watch the stack blog for more news on that in due course. But we've got two dates for your diary now. Uh, On Saturday the 28th of July we're having a stack sale with loads of rare magazines picked out of the warehouse and on offer at half price for one day only. There's going to be loads of stuff we sent out on stack in the old days and things that have been on sampler in more recent times. So um, come along to that and pick up a bargain and on Tuesday the 31st of July we're holding a lunchtime talk with co-curator Paul Gorman digging down into his selection of titles and drawing out some of the stories underpinning the exhibition. We'll be recording that one for use as a future podcast but if you're around in London do come down and join us. Uh, It'll be free to attend and I think it's the perfect way to then go and enjoy the exhibition. Okay, that's all for now. Thank you very much for listening and we'll be back with another episode next week.